Yes, and then you suture. Um, so there's different types of suture. I have to just say whatever works in your hands. I use Vicol, um, usually 5 or 6 um, but you know, whatever works in your hands, whatever technique, you can even just do simple interrupteds. It's, it's just got to be good suturing, get the soft tissue in the correct place. Um, mattress sutures are good as well. Um, and then if you need to, you put a dressing on, if it's restorative crown lengthening, you might want to use some Copac. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. When you start taking on more complex restorative cases, or you start doing smile design cases, these kind of cases you tend to appreciate that there are two other types of disciplines or two hard skills that really benefit a lot of these patients. Number one is orthodontics. Like a lot of my restorative patients, they would really benefit from pre-restorative orthodontics. And that makes sense, okay? With restorative, you can actually intrude teeth, get the gingival levels evened up. You can actually uh, make your dentistry less invasive, less prep by getting the teeth in the right position. But the second one is actually soft tissue related. More and more and more to get the gum lines even for what we call aesthetic crown lengthening. There is a huge role in the perio. So this episode is focusing on that. This is with Rina Wadia. Rina Wadia is someone who's really inspired me for so many years. And when I was a dent student, she qualified and she's always been a mentor to me. In fact, I've mentioned Rina's name in the previous episodes as, you know what, Rina taught me this or Rina taught me that. So she's such a great giving clinician. She's a specialist periodontist. I know you will love her. And today's episode is talking about just crown lengthening surgery, where it comes to aesthetic crown lengthening, i.e. doing some sort of surgery to make the gum lines, the gingival zenith more even and presentable, or functional crown lengthening. This is when you're actually doing crown lengthening to allow you to get more of a ferrule, so you can actually restore a tooth. We're going to talk differences, uh, how to plan for each one, what's a post-op advice to give, and many more gems. The protrusive dental pearl I have for you is how to find out it, what kind of biotype you're dealing with. And the classic way to do it is you use a ball-ended perioprobe, and usually the perioprobe has like a, a black ball, right? So it's like a, a black painted ball, and then you put it inside the sulcus, okay? And if you can see the black or the probe shining through the gingiva, then you know you've got someone with a thin biotype. And you write in your notes, okay, diagnosis, thin biotype. If you can't see the probe or if you can't see the, the ball end, then, then that is a thick biotype. And, and that's a good little technique that I learned, which is very relevant to this episode. We'll also be talking a bit later in this episode about how to do bone sounding, okay? How to, what is bone sounding and how to do it and how it's relevant to your planning for crown lengthening surgery. So if you don't know what your altered passive eruption is to your altered active eruption, then this episode will sort you right out. Let's join Rena now in the main podcast and I'll catch you in the outro. Rena, your ears must be burning because you're, I know you're super busy and stuff. You probably haven't had time to listen to a podcast like for commutes and stuff, but your ears must be burning because I talk about you uh, now and again on the podcast. I say, you know what, Rena taught me this many years ago. Or, you know, Rena, Rena once taught me this. So it is so nice, Rena Wadia, to, to have you on the podcast today. Uh, how are you? Yes, really good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, congratulations on such a successful podcast. And 
Delighted to be here. Thank you. So it's down to the, the Petruserati. So those who listen to the uh, podcast are called the Petruserati, uh, and it's all down to them all over the world who, who listen. So it's, it's, it's really nice. And uh, we're going to cover uh, the theme of crown lengthening surgery. Uh, and you are someone who's taught me so much more than just perio stuff. You know, back in the day, you taught me about life. You taught me about communication skills. You taught me about how to navigate this difficult minefield uh, of, of dentistry. So um, I'm sure some of those nuggets I might just say now and again, oh, Rina, remember that time you taught me this or whatever? So we might just like, you know, take lots of different directions. But for those very few people out there who don't know who you are, Rina, just give us a quick little intro uh, of yourself and, and what you do. Sure. So, um, so yeah, I'm Rina. I'm a specialist periodontist. I'm based in London. So most of my week, um, I'm at the clinic at 75 Harley Street, um, where we've got a specialist clinic um, with me and a few hygienists as well, um, which I really love and enjoy. Um, we recently moved to our new clinic, which has been exciting. Um, and then once a week, I'm in the hospital as well at King's. Um, and then the rest of the week, I'm teaching, um, doing podcasts like these and enjoying myself as well. So it's a really nice balance. Do you still do your um, Instagram lives? I remember uh, at one stage you were doing some loads and I used to enjoy catching them. Do you still get time for much of that? I'm trying to keep that going. I think I had more time during the lockdown to do all that. But it, I think it's technology is amazing. I mean, things like this, things like Instagram Live, it's a great way to connect with people and share knowledge and information. So I'm hoping to do more of that um, going forward now that the practice has settled down. You need to because your, your, your presence uh, on camera, your teaching ability is something I model. I like to go, how can I be more like Rena when I'm communicating something because something I've admired for many years. But today we're going to really cover something really well, which is crown lengthening surgery, which we're going to start from the very uh, basics because over the last six months to a year or so, a lot more dental students have started to listen to, uh, to the podcast uh, from all over the world. So let, let's just even start with the very basics, like what is crown lengthening surgery? Yeah, and, and actually don't underestimate the basics because with things like crown lengthening, often if you don't get those basics, that's when things go wrong, which I'm sure we'll, we'll go into later. But um, it's always great to start off um, with a definition. So crown lengthening is basically what it says. Um, uh, and essentially it's um, removal of usually soft and hard tissue to gain supragingival crown height, basically. Um, it usually involves removal of bone. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but essentially you're creating more tooth crown or, or structure um, above the gum line. Um, and you're recreating usually what what we call the biologic width, um, which is now called suprachrestal tissue attachment, uh, according to the new classification. Wow, I had no idea actually. This is this is news to me. So now it's called suprachrestal tissue attachment. So no longer we're going to be using biological width. Yeah, I do like the word biologic width. I have to say, yes, I'm, I, I think I still kind of use it. But if you want to be perfect and textbook, according to the new classification, it's suprachrestal tissue attachment. Okay, fine, fair enough. Let's let's go with supercrestal tissue attachment. Now, I think for the basis of this podcast, that's not going to stick with me. So if I say biological width, I mean supercrestal tissue attachment. Okay, fine. Well, one of the most basic things that I got exposed to crown lengthening early on was when I saw some cases on social media, where else, right, where someone had just come and um, like on one side, like upper right canine to upper right central, they just started to use a blade to cut away tissue. And it looked amazing. I was like, wow, this right side um, revealing the, um, the true clinical uh, crown of that tooth compared to where the, the tissue was overgrown on the left. It looked amazing, right? And then I thought, 
this is great, right? Let's go to Monday morning practice. Uh, and the biggest mistake someone could make now, and we're going to discuss this in very, very much detail now, is you can just make a huge mistake by just cutting away the gum and then that's it. It's not as simple as that because you, you alluded to it already. You also need to consider uh, hard tissue bone removal. So the, the most basic question, I think the most fundamental question everyone should be thinking is, okay, at what point is it, can you get away with? Because I have in a few cases gotten away with it. What, when can you get away with just simple soft tissue removal? Maybe you're trying just improve the gingival zenith, which is the highest point of a, of a tooth, of a, of a central, just to match it before you do your crown. When can we get away with that? And then when can we not get away with that? And then we have to consider raising a flap, bone removal, sutures, blood, like the t-shirt I'm wearing, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so this is such a fundamental question. And I think it's, this is, if you don't understand the principles, this is where you'll get it wrong. And this is where when you do it, it might look nice for like a week or two, and then the patient will come back and it's an absolute disaster. Um, so it's all about the biologic width. So with crown lengthening, what you're trying to do is recreate the biologic width. Now, the biologic width is something very special, or I should call it supercrestal tissue attachment. You have to respect it. Um, if it, you respect it, it will respect you. That's what I always say. So that biologic width, firstly, let's define what it is. So it's the junctional epithelium plus your connective tissue. Um, and according to Garguello, um, which is a person who kind of 1961, long time ago, um, defined it, it's two millimeters approximately. Now, practically, if you include the sulcus depth, we say it's sort of three millimeters. So the number for you to remember is three millimeters. Now, what you have to always check is, do you have that three millimeters? So when you're looking at your tissue margin or whichever your reference point is to the bone level, if you have the, the crestal bone level. Can we make this really specific and tangible? So let's talk about the upper right central incisor and the upper left central incisor. Let's say that your um, the, the, the upper left one is just more gummy, right? And uh, you want to now check with the upper left one, how would you do right. it? Right, so you'd firstly find your reference point, which is going to be the same as the other one, right? So you wanna match it. So if that, from that point to the alveolar crest, you've got three millimeters, guess what? You, great, you've got your biologic width, you don't need to worry. If you don't have three millimeters between your reference point and your bone, you will need to recreate it, which is normally the case. And if you need to recreate it, you recreate it by removing bone so you can shift that space up. So the point is, if you're probing or you've got a radiograph and your bone's sounding and you've actually got three millimeters once you've cut the gum, right? You've cut the gum to where you want it, then you've got three millimeters till the alveolar crest, you're fine, great. You've already got your biologic width or your supercrestal tissue attachment. If you don't, you then need to raise a flap and remove bone so that you then create that three millimeters. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And please don't try this at home unless you've actually done a course or something <laughs> like that. And we'll talk about that at the end. But um, right, you mentioned bone sounding. Please explain what is bone sounding and how to do it. Like, I I'm familiar with it. I've done it. But maybe based on your description, I might realize, hey, maybe I've done it wrong a few times. So what is the best way to do bone sounding? So we've got the central incisor. You want to check, is my bone three millimeters away or not? That's called bone sounding. But tell us how to do it. Yeah, so bone sounding is an interesting one. Um, it's a way of determining where the bone level is so you know if you need to remove bone or not and you know if you need to, to raise a flap. Now, there's other ways also of determining where the bone level is, like your radiographs, um, or like actually just raising a flap anyway and seeing where the bone is. That's the safest way of doing it. But bone sounding is a technique which you can use during your planning phase to get a bit more of an idea of this. And what you do is literally what it says, you, you could usually numb the patient up if, you, if you're nice. Um, and then you literally get a probe and you just 
push right down until you feel the bone. Um, so it's quite not like normal probing, right down. And when you feel that hard bone, that's where you measure and you say, okay, that's where my bone level is. So that's bone sounding. I have to say, I don't often bone sound. My kind of technique is I pretty much always raise a flap unless it's extremely obvious that you don't need to remove bone because you don't really know until you know you physically see the bone exactly what this not just where the bone level is but the structure of the bone because sometimes with crown lengthening you've got this bulbous bone right and you you want to actually recontour the bone as well it's not just about ostectomy it's about osteoplasty as well so there are many benefits of, of raising a flap so i always advocate usually unless it's super obvious that you don't need to um being safer doing it properly the first time rather than making your patient go through surgery again if it doesn't work I think within your remit as a specialist periodontist, I think, you know, you're so comfortable with raising flaps, you know, uh, so that makes sense uh, how you do that. And then you can control all the outcomes. And like you said, uh, a real pearl you gave that is that sometimes uh, periodontists, when they're doing the surgery, they have to remove the thickness of bone as well, which is something that people don't appreciate uh, sometimes. So that's a really good uh, tip there as well. Um, with the, the bone sounding, like me as more of a restorative background, I'm more likely to do bone sounding than number of the flaps I will raise in a year is, is way less than you. So I, I am doing more bone sounding. That one thing that I might want to say and you correct me if I'm wrong is sometimes when you're starting bone sounding you, you, you go in and you think you're there but you're probably just at the uh, at the connective tissue you actually need to just really go a little bit more and then you hit the bone is that something that you might find a beginner might make a mistake like definitely that? don't be too gentle um and you know they're numb so it's not going to hurt so um definitely you're going to be a little bit aggressive with it Okay, so let's talk about the difference between, from what I know, there's two types of crown lengthening, there might be more, but as a general dentist, there's aesthetic crown lengthening uh, and functional crown lengthening. Uh, is there any more? And then can you just go over a little bit about each one, the differences? Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're right. So there's two major types of crown lengthening, aesthetic and restorative. Um, aesthetic is becoming more and more popular, I have to say, lots getting lots of patients interested in what they call the gum lift, um, which I find really funny. Um, or I, I like to call it gum, I think it's a bit more more than a gum lift it's I, I quite like gum sculpting um more than anything but anyway aesthetic thing is getting more popular and it's, it's a great skill to have um as a, a general dentist as well because if you're doing all these beautiful smile cases it just adds that extra bit to it at the end and i think you can't forget about soft tissues um the pink is part is really important if you put all that work into doing invisalign and all the other bonding and whitening and everything else um if your gingival margin isn't quite right it's, it's going to affect the final results so Aesthetic crown lengthening is what it says, essentially, it's to improve the aesthetic. So it could be, for example, like you described earlier, uneven gingival contours, right? So one is slightly higher than the other. And that slight difference can make every difference to the smile. So small but significant impact. Um, other ones, um, sometimes just generally gummy smiles and conditions such as altered passive eruption um, can cause... I totally want to talk about that. So if we can just go into what that means. Like when I first came across that, like two years out of dental school, it, it would just completely confuse me. Now I've got some clarity on it, but I, I think this would be such a fundamental thing to cover. Yeah. Um, so do you want me to talk about that now in terms of autopass eruption or show? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, sure. So autopass eruption, um, so this is quite surprisingly, a lot of people don't know about it, and it's one of the most common reasons for a gummy smile. And I have to admit, I actually didn't know about it until I did my specialist training. So um, it's not something that's really touched upon or usually at undergraduate dental school. So going back to basics, basically you have active eruption, which is when the teeth come out of the jaw, essentially, in the most simplistic terms. And passive eruption is when your gingivae retract around the tooth. And there's a, it's four stages. Um, I won't bore you with the details, but there's four stages as to how the, the gingivae retract. And that's passive eruption. So active eruption, passive eruption. 
altered passive eruption is when that process doesn't go quite to plan um, and when the gingivae doesn't quite retract to the level of the CEJ where it should be. So what happens is your gingival margin is coronal to your CEJ um, and biology hasn't quite finished its job. So with crown lengthening, what you're doing is almost recreating where it should, where the gingival margin should be. So the CEJ is underneath the gingival margin. And there's different types of ultrapassive eruption. You get type four different, uh, four types, 1A, 1B, 2A, and 2B. Um, and if you look at the classification, it depends on it, where the bone level is and the amount of um, keratinized tissue that you have, uh, attached gingivae that you have as well. So you can then divide it up. But I think it's extremely common. The incidence is like 11, 12%. So it's, it's not uncommon. And you might find mm -hmm. that most of the um, cases that you see that are gummy smiles are actually altered passive eruption cases. Rena, because it's altered passive eruption, so you, I, I, no one's ever explained to me like active eruption, passive eruption before, so I, I love that. So with the altered passive eruption, because it really helps you to explain it, um, because it's the passive part that's uh, had an issue and not the active part, so is, is active more like bone and passive more like, more like gum, right? Um, yeah, but active is exactly is the tooth and the bone, and then, the, yeah, exactly, the passive eruption is the gingival part of it, essentially. So does that mean that someone who's got an um, altered passive eruption might be someone who gets away more with just the gingivectomy without the bone removal, or is that not the case? No, so I would probably say that the um, passive side, I just focus on gums, and I'd actually say periodontium structure. So the, the bone in passive eruption might be at the right level, it might not be. So there's two different types. Um, and it, in one type, it is at the right level, one type, it isn't. So depending on what type it is, so if it's, um, so you have, I'll just go through it. 1A is basically osseous crest is apical to the uh, CEJ. Um, and then 1B is osseous crest is at the CEJ. So for 1A, you would do a gingivectomy, whereas for 1B, you would do a gingivectomy plus osseous surgery. So um, active eruption, I would say, is the teeth. And then passive eruption is gums and periodontium, basically. I was just going to say, it's just good to know about it because personally, I think if before doing any type of treatment, you need a diagnosis as to why you're doing that treatment. It's just important to highlight that you do need a diagnosis before you then do treatment, i.e. crown lengthening. So knowing about ultrapassive eruption, that could be your diagnosis or, you know, a fractured crown might be your diagnosis, but you need to know, you have to have a diagnosis before you prescribe treatment. So I think it is important to know about its condition. Great. And we were just touching on um, the difference between aesthetic crown lengthening, which how um, APE tied in so nicely with, but then now can you just touch a little bit on functional crown lengthening and when we might uh, do that? And which is the most common tooth that you get referred for uh, functional crown lengthening? Um, so functional crown lengthening, also called restorative um, crown lengthening, is basically when you have inadequate tooth structure. Um, it's a strategic tooth. You're trying to save it, but you just don't have that two millimeter ferrule and by doing restorative crown lengthening you're essentially creating that so you can restore the tooth um, it could be that you've got a fracture um, you've got a perforation endoperforation in the coronal third that's key you're not going to do it if it's like in the apical third so something in the coronal third and you're trying to save um, that tooth or an important point is if you're trying to relocate um, the crown margin when it's, when it's been impinged, i.e. someone's not respected the biologic width, guess what? You're now going to have to do crown lengthening to recreate it. So um, that's, a, that's a, actually really common. I'm seeing it more and more. 
I mean, the most common time I, I've, I say the most common, the few times I've done it, uh, I, I have done it to ha get more ferial so that I can now make a, a tooth that was previously unrestorable, more restorable, give it a better prognosis. Uh, which is the most common tooth that you get referred for this? It's usually um, a lower molar. From my, my experience, that's what I've had so far. Um, it's usually like a strategic tooth. They've lost, already lost another molar behind it. Um, patients are really keen to save it and do everything they can. Um, and don't want to jump straight into implants. Um, and that's usually the most common thing. And I, I always say to the patient, you know, everything has a lifespan in dentistry. And so if you're going to jump to an implant, guess what? That implant also might have a lifespan. So the longer you can keep your own tooth, um, the better. And I'm not saying to do heroics, like if it's, you know, a tooth which is completely broken down, has got like a 10 millimeter perro pocket, terrible endo. Yes, it may be better to extract that. You have to be sensible, but usually nothing's better than your own tooth in, in my experience. Fantastic. Because what people really resonate with, what dentists really resonate, resonate with when they listen to podcasts is there's little sayings, there's ways that we communicate with patients. So that's awesome. So yeah, you said lower molars are the most common that you found. Uh, and I can see the rationale behind that. And I love what you say to the patients. Now, what is a fundamental difference between the aesthetic crown lengthening uh, and the restorative crown lengthening in terms of the, the surgeon when you're doing the procedure? Yeah, so in terms of the, the differences between the two, firstly, the, the similarities is that the principles are the same. So you're, you're in both scenarios, you're trying to recreate the biologic width um, and you're using a reference point. Now, the differences are the reference points. So usually for aesthetic crown lengthening, it's usually your CEJ, especially in ultrapassive eruption cases, whereas for restorative crown lengthening or functional crown lengthening, it might be you know certain crown margin. It might be that amount of sound tooth tissue that you need. So it, it varies. The actual technique itself, again, the principles are the same, i.e., we'll, we'll go into this a little bit more detail, but you remove the gum, raise the flap, remove the bone, stitch it back up. However, for aesthetic crown lengthening, usually it's just buckle because it's you don't, you don't see the palatal or lingual, so it's usually just buckle, whereas for restorative, it usually is a, uh, you know 360 across the tooth. Um, for restorative crown lengthening, um, usually if it's at the back of the mouth especially, I wouldn't be worried about doing vertical releasing incisions you know, not that bothered about it. Whereas anteriorly, I really would avoid it because you don't want any scarring because, you know, you're doing it for aesthetic reasons. So um, we try to minimize, and usually you don't need it to be honest, for aesthetic, you, sometimes it's usually a kind of four to four case or three to three, you've got enough access without doing a relieving incision. Um, often as well for, I mean, your, your end goal is also different between the two while you're actually doing it. Um, but often for aesthetic crown lengthening, I would also consent them for what I call a revision surgery. Because um, mm -hmm. when we go to the restorative phase, often these patients, they, they want a, you know, a little tweak um, before the final res restorations to make everything perfect. Um, or if you get, uh, you get ginger beet overgrow again, then you might need to do a bit more surgery. So that's less important for restorative cases. So I would consent for revision surgery for aesthetic crown lengthening as well. And I guess the other difference is with the healing, I often use things like Copac for restorative crown lengthening because it really keeps the tissues down. Whereas for aesthetic, I would not be putting Copac at the front of the mouth. Copac, just to explain, is a dressing that you can use, periodontal dressing. It looks a bit like pink chewing gum, feels like chewing gum, um, and you just press it on the tissues and it essentially just keeps the tissues in place. Um, and then two weeks later, you remove it and take the stitches out. It works beautifully, but it's not something that you're gonna paste across someone's from, you know, front of their mouth, so. So anterior cases, those um, aesthetic ones, we just, um, you're not using a copac, but you're just let, letting nature do its job? Yeah, you need to suture. Um, you always need to suture, depend if you raise a flap, you have to suture, but apart from that, yeah, the, the gums will just heal. And suturing is really important. I mean, um, everyone 
focus is on the first few stages of removing the gum and bone, but your sutures is where your tissue is going to end up, right? So spend time on, on suturing as well and doing it well. Amazing. So good, good few pause there. Uh, I'm going to uh, go really geeky now and ask you a geeky question, which always bothered me about this subject, right? Um, and I just can't get my head around it. So now that I have you on the show, I'm going to be very selfish and ask a question, but I'm hoping it'll help others who are thinking the same thing, right? So you mentioned about the similarity between aesthetic crown lengthening and restorative crown lengthening, i.e. you have to cut some gum away, you raise a flap, you remove the bone, etc. You you suture back, which is so important. Now, that scenario where you actually um, cut the gum away, okay, let's just talk simplistic terms, right? The gingivectomy, you cut the gum away, and yes, you've got different um, goals, you know, the CEJ being one and the other one just revealing more tooth structure, but everyone's got a defined and finite amount of keratinized tissue, right? So let's say, you know, you've got some patients, right? And they've got like miles of keratinized tissue, like thick, meaty, I'd love to do crown lengthening on a case like that. But then you've got someone who's just got two millimeters of keratinized tissue, right? So what if for that patient who you're doing, let's say a restorative crown lengthening on a lower molar, they've got, let's say four millimeters of keratinized tissue, and then you cut away three millimeters, and then you do your uh, crown lengthening, and then you suture it back, what happens, right? Is, does it just stay as one millimeter keratinized tissue for the rest of that patient's life? Or does the apical part of it suddenly become keratinized? What happens? What's the biology of that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think the first important point is keratinized tissue is important. Um, it helps um, patients to comfortably clean around the gingiva, so it, it maintains health. So keratinized tissue, if it's um, there's not tons of it, you need to be careful, basically. So in most cases, you have enough to be able to do a gingivectomy, raise a flap, remove bone, stitch it back up. But in the rare cases where you don't have sufficient keratinized tissue and you know by then cutting it away, essentially there's going to be hardly anything left, you need to change your technique. So in this case, you actually need to preserve the keratinized tissue. You need to raise the flap right past the mucogingival junction and actually, after you've removed the bone, apically reposition the flap. So it's a different technique for those types of cases. I have to be honest, I can't remember the last time I did that. So in most cases, you will have sufficient keratinized tissue, but you are right, you need to be on um, red alert if that happens, preserve the keratinized tissue. Um, and I, I'm biased as a periodontist saying that, but it honestly it is really, really important to have it there. So essentially that's the difference then therefore between uh, what we call resective crown lengthening surgery versus, uh, is it apically positioned? Is that, is that the correct term? Correct term, yeah, apically positioned, yeah, using a different approach, exactly. Fine, that's the one that I've never done an apically repositioned. Um, is that something you teach on your course? It is, yeah, it is something that I teach, um, but it's so like, it's so rare that you probably won't need to, you know, you need to do it. If, and if you were starting off for the first time, I would, wouldn't advise that as your first case. Um, you want one with stacks of keratinized tissue, as you said. So um, it's, it's more tricky for sure. Okay, Serena, we've taken like a little geeky detour covering, you know, all the wonderful things that you answered my fault because I asked you these geeky questions about altered active eruption stuff. But really, I want to hear, because I think what people find um, useful in this podcast is hearing the steps, the, the little steps. And what you taught me many years ago, Rina, was micro steps. You taught me the, the term micro steps out. And these are, this is the difference between success and failure. It's not the big set. It's those little micro steps you take. So uh, within the remit of the podcast episode, let's cover a couple minutes of what are the steps involved in crown lengthening surgery yeah micro steps it's so important honestly some of the best clinicians it's not just about the macro steps it's about the tiny detail um, and doing it consistently every single time so 
It's good you remember that. <laughs> um, so the first step I would say is assessment um, to plan your approach. And it's all about planning. Crown lengthening, the actual procedure, the surgical side of things is actually not that difficult. It's the planning stage, um, as with anything in dentistry. So you've got to plan a couple of things. So firstly, you need to look at your periodontal health. Um, and I know I'm biased, but I've seen too many cases where someone's got periodontitis and they start hacking away and doing crown aesthetic crown lengthening. It's not appropriate. Um, cutting tissues that are inflamed and there's plaque everywhere. It's going to be messy. It's not going to heal well. You could make it worse. So step by step, get the periodontal health super healthy. Um, patient plaque control needs to be optimal. Um, look at other restorative factors. You know, do you need to redo the endo? Is there anything else you need to do restoratively before you then um, start your crown lengthening? Also determine your reference point. You know, what is your reference point? Is it the CEJ? That's what is it? Because that's going to be what you're going to measuring from. And you're going to remember that three millimeter rule, essentially. Um, if you're doing aesthetic crown lengthening, you need to plan your gingival aesthetics. So, you know, know the gold standards. Where, where's that zenith meant to be on the canine? Where's that zenith meant to be on the central? Is it meant to match, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to plan that out. I quite like um, what I've started doing now. I have my iPad and then I import the patient's photo and I've got a little pen um, and I draw on and then I show that to the patient as well. It's, it's an oh, you're so posh, Rina. <laughs> I know. I need to use paper and draw it on and I thought I'd better, better up my game so I'm using an iPad with me. It's quite fun. Um, so quite therapeutic. Um, and then also... Also looking at the amount of keratinized tissue that we discussed as well earlier and also where your bone level is. So they're all your kind of key components when you're um, planning your case. The next thing is then your flap design and your incisions. Um, give yourself more room than you might think, especially with restorative crown lengthening. Don't be too conservative. You've got to go one tooth either side of the tooth you're treating mm. um, to get enough access to the bone. Um, so flap design incisions, if you're doing aesthetic crown lengthening, um, I teach certain flap designs where you're not going through the, you're not actually raising a papilla because you, you, know, you don't want to risk having black triangles. So there's all these little nitty gritty things to be, be aware of. Um, we then remove the excess gingival tissue and you raise your flap. And throughout all of this, you know, you've got to have the right instruments. Don't underestimate, as with anything in dentistry, good quality surgical instruments are critical. It's all about microsurgical now as well. So I've got, you know, a nice set of microsurgical instruments. It's perio is very delicate. It's not like oral surgery. You've got to be very detailed and delicate. It's a completely different approach, um, which applies to crown lengthening as well. Anyway, as I was saying, you raise the flap um, and then you see where the bone is and you do your osseous management. So at this point, you remove the bone, whether that's using um, a slow hand piece with water and a round burr. I've started using a piezo as well. You can actually get a piezo which removes bone, which is, is quite nice. Um, so I've been using that. Once you've got your bone levels sorted, you then suture. I'm just going to stop you there, Rena, because you talked about the bone removal and you talked about the suture, but uh, I've, uh, I've seen before when I was at Guy's doing my uh, DCT post that sometimes you get these like Essex retainers that little stents made to, to guide you. Do, do you use those? Yeah, um, I used to quite a lot um, and depends on who I'm working with. Some, often the cases are referred by dentists who've you know, gone to the effort of making a wax up, sending a stent. It can be helpful to give you a general idea. Um, and there's different stents. Some stents just show you where to cut the gum, essentially. You still need to use your own clinical skills to make sure you get it perfect, but it gives you a guide. It's, you know, it's a guide. Some stents are very sophisticated. It also shows you where to move the bone up to. So it's, um, it depends. It can, I think if you're starting off, it's worth doing. I'm trying to envision like doing a bigger case and, uh, you know, because you're so experienced in this now, is like, imagine you've done your gingivectomy, you raise the flap, you remove the bone, but then 
Right, because the, the gum now behaves differently, once you raise the flap, it becomes flappy, right? Um, so, so when you're trying to like approximate it back, just kind of measure, okay, have you, will it look okay? Any advice on eyeballing that? Yeah, the strength can be useful in that case. What I'm generally doing is quite simple. You just put the flap back, push your elevator against the flap, and put your probe underneath, and you just keep doing that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I generally do it, so okay. um, and which works quite well. Um, yes, and then you suture. Um, so there's different types of suture. I have to just say whatever works in your hands. I use Vicol, um, usually 5 or 6 um, but you know whatever works in your hands, whatever technique, you can even just do simple interrupteds. It's it's just got to be good suturing, get the soft tissue in the correct place. Um, mattress sutures are good as well. Um, and then if you need to, you put a dressing on. If it's restorative crown lengthening, you might want to use some Copac, and then you let everything heal. And usually it's two weeks um, that they then you then review them, remove the stitches. I usually get a cotton pledger, dip it in corsodil. I don't like using the C word. It's the only time I like using corsodil is after surgery, um, where I literally wipe the gingivy and remove the sutures. And then you just let it heal. Um, and I guess timing wise in terms of cases you're looking at um for restorative cases that you need to wait three months prior to putting your definitive restoration on mm-hmm. you can put your provisional after sutures out you can go straight to provisional but you need to wait ideally three months for aesthetic cases the textbook answer um you actually have to wait six months i have to say um some of me and my referrers we, we wait four or five months and we're usually okay but what you need to be aware of is the gingival margin can continue to slightly change up to six months mm-hmm. so if you want to do it properly get some good provisionals on possibly lab made provisionals just let them be essentially for six months once everything's perfect then go into your final ones because the last thing you want is you've got your finals in and then like a month later gingerby ever so slightly it goes higher or lower um and then the patient's not happy and you have to redo everything so mm-hmm. that's your kind of overall step so you assess flap design incisions raise the flap remove the excess gingival remove the excess gingival tissue first raise the flap remove the bone stitch up let it heal um and then move on to your restorative phase if there is one if you're doing any revision surgery then do you ha- does that reset the clock for six months um usually not depending on what it is if it's just a t- it's usually the tiniest amount so i think it doesn't really count unless it's extensive then yes reset the clock unfortunately gotcha so you've done your crown lengthening surgery with those lovely steps that you talked through. What's the post-op um, care looking like for a patient? Now, you mentioned about how long to wait for for restorative, which is one of my next questions. That's awesome. So we know that. Uh, six months for aesthetic cases. Perfect. But post-op-wise, uh, what do you say to the patient? Yeah, so um, in terms of for any surgical procedure, they're going to be on um, chlorhexidine usually for two weeks. No brushing of the area because it's technically a wound. So if you can't brush it, it's, it's a delicate area. Um, brushing the rest of the mouth um, as normal. Soft food. Um, ideally for as long as possible but ideally a week or so um, just be sensible nothing with like seeds and crusty things that's going to affect uh, affect the healing um, and then just in terms of two weeks after once you've removed the stitches they then can start brushing the area and crown lengthening is unique in the fact that unlike other periodontal surgeries you can start brushing quite quickly and you kind of need to so the gum doesn't try to uh, go back to where it was so with other types of periodontal surgery sometimes for months they don't brush so it's it's quite different with crown crown lengthening so um and of course after any surgical procedure patients need to take it easy no major exercise anything like that Painkillers, regular painkillers are fine. Um, I also include an ice pack that they can just put on their face, especially if you're doing a big case. The thing is, give them everything they need. The last thing you want is you put your patient through a massive surgery and then they have to go to like boots to buy all this stuff on the way home. It's not fun. So give them a goodie bag with everything they need, ice pack, painkillers, straws, whatever else they need, mouthwash. 
um, gauze, um, so they're ready, you know, to go straight home. I think that preparation side is really important. I also send them an email the week before telling them how to prepare. So get your foods ready, um, soft foods, food replacement drinks like Huel, really good. Um, all those kind of things, get them ready, painkillers, all of that, um, so they feel prepared. Otherwise, they're just, you know, they don't feel prepared and they get more anxious and everything goes wrong. You need a calm patient um, if you're doing these types of cases. That was brilliant. I, I really love the, the Huel reference, which is quite, I never thought of that, but I guess that's something new, right? We can, we can start having these meal replacements. It makes so much sense. And also having a goodie bag, you're so right. You've made it really clear that you don't want this patient who's just had this uh, surgery, numb lips, to, to go to Boots to buy something. You're so right. We should totally make a, a goodie bag. Um, last question, uh, last couple of questions that are clinically orientated. Um, I want to ask about which is the ideal case? Like, imagine, like, you know, you, so this is something you teach. What do you tell your students, right? Okay, when you go out Monday morning, find a case which has, which ticks these boxes. Yeah. Um, so when you're starting off, I would say a restorative crown lengthening one is good as a first case because it's the back of the mouth. Something goes not wrong, but it's not beautiful. It's not going to be the end of the world. Um, lots of keratinized tissue, possibly minimal bone removal. So you just get practice of raising a flap and, and doing some minimal bone removal. Once you've got the hang of that, then you can move on to a bit more complex and possibly anterior cases with lots of keratinized tissue, but again, minimal bone removal. So start off easy, get your confidence because the last thing you want is you do a case and it goes wrong and you know what it's like, right? You just don't want to do any more. So you've got to have an, an easy first case. Pick someone with a very low lip line and you do a static crown landing on them. That's the best person. <laughs> which I don't see the point of, but hey-ho. You see, you, see, you see it done on the gram sometimes. Yeah, and a nice, like, <laughs> a nice, easy patient, like not one that's, like, ridiculously nervous and difficult, if you see what I mean. So, fidgety, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Uh, geeky little tiny questions now. Um, sutures, facing buccal or facing palatal? Let's say you're doing some upper crown lengthening uh, aesthetic. Uh, so the not facing buccal or the not facing palatal? Or does it not matter? It probably doesn't matter too much. I always do buccal. I think it irritates them more when it's palatally on their tongue and they keep playing around with it. So... Um, I stick to buckle knots. Okay, sweet. And then um, always the cold blade or is there a place for laser? I absolutely love, I'm very traditional. I love the blade. Um, but there is a place for laser. Yeah. I have to say I don't use it. Um, but if you're doing simple gingivectomy cases, you can use a laser and it's great because it stops the bleeding as well. So um, if you're doing an overgrowth case is actually technically, if you're removing the bulk, that is a type, of, I should have said actually, that's a type of crown lengthening technically, if you want to be geeky, um, which you are, and me, I am as well. So <laughs> <laughs> that is a type of, of crown lengthening. And the, for those type of cases where you get a lot of bleeding, the laser might be really useful. Are you talking about those amlodipine-induced uh, gingival? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah technically, fine. if you're removing that bulk, you're actually crown lengthening. Mm -hmm. So um, that is technically the third type. But anyway, I mean, it's whatever works in your hands. I think at this stage, it's worth possibly starting off with a blade because it's kind of a traditional thing to use and then exploring other systems. And what I, one thing I would say is, is, you know, don't complicate things. Like if something works in your hands and you're doing it well, keep things simple. Don't have too many variations in and what I call your micro steps or building blocks because then it just things start getting unpredictable. So test everything out, go on courses and then see what works in your hands and then stick with that. Well, that leads me nicely to because I've, I've seen so many good reviews on, on, on your course, your video testimonials, uh, your, your videos that you've made have been so crisp. Um, tell us about, I mean, is it, is it purely online? Is there a hands-on as well? I mean, how does that work with your course? Yeah, so um, all of our courses are under Perio School, which I, I set up during the lockdown, which is really exciting. Um, and originally Perio School was all online because it happened because of the lockdown. So I had to cancel all my courses, basically made 
everything online, which has been amazing because people from all over the world have been, been accessing. It's got a massive community now, which is really exciting. Um, so there's lots of courses online. The crown lengthening one is hands-on because there's no way I think you can just learn it from watching a video. Um, you need to come in person. Um, we've got special models that we ordered from, from the US where you can remove the gum. It's very cool. Um, we've got pig's heads, obviously, to get the experience of removing um, gum, bone, stitching, all those kind of things. Um, and so the, 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 the key crown lengthening course is the hands-on course. It's a one-day course, um, usually on a Sunday. So Oh, nice. You're such a geek. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone loves it because it's, you know, you're not, not, you don't normally have to give up a day of work, which is nice. Um, and uh, it, the next one's on the 18th of July. And if you go to um, www.perio.school, and that's on a Sunday? That, that, that was a Sunday, right? Yeah, that's a Sunday. Oh my goodness, that sounds so enticing. Okay, I will definitely take a look at that. Um, so is that one just purely hands-on? Is that, on, is that an online component as well? Um, it's purely hands-on and we literally go step by step. I mean, we've had like new grads on that and it's for anyone really. We've had like people with 20 years experience people have just qualified um, and what we do there's a lecture component and we I show you the bit and then you you do it I, I basically explain it then I show you and then you do it on on the pig's head so it's step by step and at the end of the day you should be quite confident being able to go my whole point is you go out into practice and you can actually do a crown lengthening case that's the whole point um, I have to say as well though there is mentoring after that as well I was so, just going to ask about that do you have like a secret group or something that you can post to yeah no I just, it's just one to one so basically oh, wow. whenever you get a case we'll talk through it um, um, we'll do a quick video call. We'll talk through the steps. Then we'll talk about how it went after. You can take some pictures. Um, it's just till you get the confidence because the whole point of courses for me is I want to, the satisfaction for me is for me to, you be able to say to me, Rena, I've gone out and done my first case. And then it's like, yeah, I don't want you to say, oh, that was a good course. And then that's it. You want to get, be able to apply it. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it would be great to have um, anyone who's interested on there. And if you want to go any questions, just get in touch. I will definitely put the link on, 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 the, on the website uh, ASAP. So guys, check that out on a Sunday. That sounds amazing. In, in London. And I totally echo what you said about trying to get delegates to do their first case ASAP and supporting them. It's the same with the splint course, which I set up. Uh, and I just love uh, our little community. And every time someone posts a splint that they've done and they color it in and they do a parafunctional analysis and stuff, it makes me so happy. And then now, now everyone's taking videos of their patients saying, you know what, my headaches are gone or whatever. So same with you, I guess, when patients send you, for, 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 when dentists send you photos of their patients who they're in crown lengthening, so you must feel so proud and have that warm, you know, fuzzy feeling inside. It's amazing. It's very, it's very, uh, makes me really happy. But also in the patients, when you hear that, as you said, their reviews, things like crown lengthening can be life changing. Um, don't underestimate the value of it, whether it's aesthetic or even restorative. They, you manage to save someone's tooth. You know, the value of a tooth is, is huge. So um, if you can have this skill, which I think is great for anyone in practice, you know, whatever specialty you're in, whether you're general practice or, you know, it's literally a key, a key skill for everyone. Um, so it's worth knowing about. Sweet. Well, we're recording right now. It's uh, June. Uh, and uh, do you have any spaces available for July so I can message my community? Yes, we do. We've got around six um, spaces okay. left. So it's, it's going to be a small group um, of 10. Um, so we've got a couple more spaces. So, Perfect. Yeah. Brilliant. I'll, I'll get that out to everyone. I'm sure we'll see some protrusivity on there. Uh, Rina, thank you so much for, for covering Crown Lending in such a great way. Uh, it's always, always nice connecting with you. It's lovely to see you again after a long while. Uh, and, and thank you for giving up your time. Really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, there we are, Patrice Rati. I hope you enjoyed that episode, Rina, all about crown lengthening. I hope you're now able to assess your patients better and, and look at them with a different lens in terms of when you see someone with short clinical crowns, they've got small teeth. Well, is it really that they have small teeth or is it that their gum never 
matured, okay? So it's a different way to look at someone, and then from there, when you make that diagnosis, some patients may actually desire, once you communicate the value of it to them, an aesthetic improvement in terms of crown lengthening, or you may plan some functional crown lengthening to help improve your restorative prognosis. So I hope you enjoy that very much, and I'll catch you in the next episode. As usual, please do check us out on Instagram, and of course, our Telegram, our special little family on Telegram. It's protrusive.co.uk forward slash Telegram to join our Telegram group, Protrusorati only. I'll catch you in the next episode, same time, same place. Thank you.